Well, it's my joy to be with you again uh, this evening. Getting near the end of First John, so I hope it's been a helpful journey for you. It has been for me. Uh, thinking about uh, the Apostle John and his writing and encouragement to the churches near the end of his life. And tonight we're going to talk about overcoming the world. Overcoming the world. Before we do, let's pray together one more time. Lord, we ask for special grace now as we continue to worship you through the hearing of your word. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us understand what John has to say. And even though we read 2,000 years after these words were penned, Lord, you still have something to say to us through them. And so, Lord, help us see it. Help us love it. Embrace it. Cherish it. As your children who have been born again by the Spirit of God and who evidence that by believing in you, by loving you, and by obeying you. We love you and praise you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John chapter 5. And as I said, we're nearing the end of this letter. There should really only be two more sermons left in this book. Uh, in this passage, John talks about uh, overcoming the world. You know, people write books about being, living the victorious Christian life. The large, one of the largest, I think perhaps the largest church in America is run by a man who talks about how you can live your best life now. What does it mean to overcome? What does it mean to be victorious in the most important sense? Because we have to think about that carefully because Jesus said the first shall be last. Jesus said he who would gain his life must lose it. So we have to think about what does it mean to overcome the world. Everyone wants to overcome. John wants us to overcome. But what does it mean and how do we do it? That's one of the things I want to talk about this evening in our sermon called Overcoming the World. And uh, as we've talked about so many times already... John is envisioning us overcoming by staying true to the truth. And we stay true to the truth by these tests whereby we can know that something is of the truth. The test of love, the test of the doctrinal test of truth, uh, and, the, and the test of obedience. And what we see here in this, uh, nearing the end of his letter, is how all these three uh, interweave together in one inseparable um, uh, truth. And so um, we're going to try to untangle it as best we can this evening. And so now uh, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word from 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. John says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. 
And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The Word of God. You may be seated. So I want to see three truths from our passage this evening. Number one, new birth believes and loves. New birth believes and loves. Number two, love obeys. Love obeys. And number three, faith overcomes. Faith overcomes. So again, new birth, believes and loves. Number two, love obeys. And number three, faith overcomes. First, new birth, believes and loves. We see this in verse one. John continues to emphasize, as he has in numerous places in the letter, the significance of new birth in the Christian life, and we've talked about that at some length, and it's worthy of it, because John sees that the new birth is the fountain and the source of everything else in the Christian life. And he says there in the first part of verse 1 that everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That is the fact uh, That someone uh, believes the truth about Christ now is evidence that he has already been born again in the past. Present faith is the result of past divine action in our lives. It is the evidence that something supernatural has happened to us. That God through his spirit has reached out and granted us to see who Christ really is. That Jesus is the Christ. And John says, if we can see and embrace that Jesus is the Christ, that he's not just a guru, that he's not just a nice guy who said some nice things one time, but that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the fulfillment of every promise of God, the climax of human history, the king of the world. If we can see that, John says, then we have been born of God. You see, those who had defected from this Christian community, which is why John is writing this letter, they were denying the truth about Christ. But if we believe, if we believe that Jesus is the Christ, John says, then we indeed have been born of God. And if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, then you have not been born of God. And John goes on in the second half of verse 1 to say that everyone who loves The Father, and everyone who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of Him. So literally, this could be translated, everyone who loves the one who begat, loves those begotten of Him. So in the original language, there's a much clearer connection than in, in the ESV at least about the one who begets and those who are begotten of him. So John intends to make this clear connection between the begetter and the begotten. And of course, that's the language of birth, because he's just talked about being born of God. How are we born of God? We're begotten. We're born begotten of God, by God. And And he says, everyone who loves the begetter 
loves everyone who has been begotten of him, who has been born of him. It's this connection, this spiritual connection. If we love the Father, John is saying, we'll love the Father's children. Genuine love for the Father is evidenced by love for the children, John says. If you say that you love me, but then you say, but I don't love your children, we're going to have a problem. We're not going to have a good relationship. Because that's just not how it works. And how much more so is it true in the family of God? Because when we are born of God, we are changed by the Spirit, the Bible says, to reflect the Father's qualities. So just like the expression, like father, like son, or like father, like daughter. Our our parents make an indelible mark in our lives. But Jesus said, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And if we're born again, that means we're born of God. And that means that God is our father. Jesus condemned the Pharisees saying, you are of your father, the devil. And so who, whoever is our father is the one whom we will reflect with our lives. And by the way, he called the most religious people in Israel children of the devil. And so... If we have been born of God, then we then are in the process of becoming to look more and more like our father, like our daddy. Some people, the older they get, the more they look like their parents. That's how it should be in the Christian life. The longer we walk with God, the more we should look like him. The more it should be evident to others where someone can look at you and say, you God's boy. You God's daughter. Why? Because his mark, his imprint is in you. You begin to look more and more like him. And so, of course, it's all interconnected. If you don't love the father's children, well, the children are those who are growing in the likeness of the father, in the qualities of the father. So if you don't love the children, then you don't love the, then you're saying you don't love the qualities that are being grown in those children. And to not love the qualities of the father is to not love the father himself. So we see it's all interconnected. Love, John says, is a test. Belief in the true doctrine of Christ is a test. Uh, And these tests uh, are inseparable. We must both believe that Jesus is the Christ, John says in verse 1. And then he says, and we must also love. Love those who have been begotten by the begetter. Because if we don't love the begotten, we can't love the begetter. Does that make sense? (laughs) So, they're all interconnected. And new birth is the root of all this. New birth is shown by belief in the truth. And new birth is shown by love of your spiritual siblings. That's how it works. When we've been begotten into the family of God, we begin to love our spiritual siblings. And then that's how we know that we love the Father. And so, of course, we've said it a thousand times. Um, but because that's what John has said over and over again in this book, but perhaps it's just because God wanted, needed, or God knew that we needed to hear it a thousand times. And that is that to know God and to be born of God and to be a true follower of God in the way that we can ver- verify and validate that truth in others, it's not rocket science. It's simple. 
but he wants us to have that confidence and assurance in our own salvation and to have the wisdom and discernment to know when the truth about God is, is lived in someone in, in other people's lives. And that truth is this, is that it's, it's faith and belief in the truth about Christ and it's love for God's people. It's love for God's people. And it sounds so simple, but reality is, is that there's all, there's all kinds of people today who say that they're a Christian and they don't believe the truth about Christ and there's no manifest love for other believers in their life. And so we have, to, we have to see, we have to be wise, we have to be discerning. And we all see it, and it's tragic and it's heartbreaking as it is, the vast number of people who say they know Jesus, they say they love the Father, but there's little to no manifest love in their lives for the children of the Father. I love God, but I'm just, I, you know, the church, meh. It's not right. New birth, John says, believes and it loves, number one. Number two, love obeys. Love obeys. We see this in verses two and three. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. So, I just said how all these things are profoundly interconnected. And John keeps saying the same thing really over and over, but in different ways. And we've talked about how new birth is the root that produces the fruit of belief in the truth and love and obedience. And now we just talked about how new birth, in new birth we believe the truth that Jesus is the Christ. We love the Father and therefore we love the the children of the Father, but now John makes another connection, and that is the connection between love and obedience. The connection between love and obedience. And he makes an interesting claim here in verse 2. He says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Well, uh, in uh, the other part of the, the letter, uh, or, or, or earlier there in, in chapter 4, verse uh, 20, uh, John says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And so, in there, John clearly says, and it makes sense to us, that if you say you love the Father, but you don't love the children, you don't love the other believers in Christ, then you're a liar, John says. It's not true. You don't really love the Father. But see, it's interesting here because John almost states the, the exact opposite, the exact converse. Rather than saying, we know that we love God by our love of the children, he says the opposite. We know we love the children by our love of God. And so what we can say then is that these things are inseparable. They, they always go together. If you have one, you have the other. Where you have love of God, you, have, you must have love of, his, of God's children. And where you have genuine love of God's children, you also have genuine love of the Father. They're inseparable. And so, to love God is to love his people, and to love God's people is to love God. And John goes further to say that the love of God is, he says, uh, this is the love of God, that we keep his 
commandments. So, John, just, John doesn't just want us to talk about love in the abstract, but for John, love is obedience. That's how it works. If you are a child, the, the preeminent aspect of love for children towards their parents is obedience, which is very striking if you study the life of Jesus, and especially in the Gospel of John. All the places where Jesus says that I've come to do the will of my Father who sent me. Jesus view, Jesus is the Son of God, and he preeminently view, viewed his, his life of, of supreme love to the Father. Nobody loved the Father like Jesus did. And it was manifested, his love for the Father, Jesus' supreme love for the Father, was manifested how? By perfect obedience. That's how we know that we love the Father is through obedience. And that's exactly what John says. This is the love of the Father. When we obey his commandments. And of course, this is what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so to love is to obey. To love Christ is to obey Christ. And in loving and obeying Christ, but don't forget the connection. He says, this is how we know that we love, uh, this is how we know that we love the children of God. We, we love God and keep his commandments. So, there, so we got we to make the connection back then. It's not just loving. We show our love for God by obeying him. But more than that, John is saying we show our love for other believers when we obey God. In other words, I think we can say what John is saying here is that love, obedience to God, is how we love others. So obedience to God does not just reflect our love for God. Obedience to God also reflects our love for others. Our love for others. Jesus said that the heart of the law was to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. So then, God's command, so that means that the law then, what the law, if the, if the sum of the law is, and the heart of the law is to love God and neighbor, that means all of God's commands then are what? Are expressions of love. So, so many times when we think of law, we just think of like, oh, all these rules, just oppressive rules. But that's obviously clearly not how God understood his commands to be. His commands, were, his commands were saying, this is how you love me. And this is how you love your neighbor. And the assumption being, if you love God, you'll want to love your neighbor. If I, and John's assumption here is saying, if you love God, you're going to want to love your fellow believers. Your fellow spiritual siblings. And God's commands then are what? It's how to love. God's command shows us preeminently what love looks like. And so this should change the way we look at the commands of the Bible. The world looks at the commands of Scripture and says, What a drag! It's keeping me down from what I want to do and what's going to make me happy. But John is saying that if you really, if you really love God and know Him, then the, the great desire of your heart, the thing which is will actually make you most happy, is when you're loving Him and loving others. And here's how you do that. By obedience to God's commands. God's commands show us how to love. And if we know God, then that's, 
That's really what we want to do more than anything, is to love God and to love others and to serve people in the way that will bring them the greatest eternal good. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, 1 through 5, put it like this. He said, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, verse 2, and walk in love. There it is. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But, he says, sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, Christians, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. But I want to, draw you, I want to point you back there to verse 2. Paul says, and walk in love as Christ loved us. And then he talks about all these commandments. of what, uh, uh, Sexual morality should not be named. Impurity, covetousness, which is idolatry. That is wanting anything more than God. Wanting something that doesn't belong to you as if that's going to make you happy besides God. So Paul calls covetousness idolatry. Looking to something else, anything besides God. As thinking, if I just have that, then I'll be really happy. What, and, but, and so what Paul is saying is he says, walk in love, and then he gives all these commandments. So what Paul is saying is that obedience to God's commands in these areas is what? Is love. Is love. If, you're, if we're sexually immoral, we're not loving our neighbor. If we're impure, we're not loving our neighbor. That's why, you know, so much can be said about this, and I don't want to preach a sermon within a sermon, but there's, but there's no such thing as an anonymous sin. Any sin, any act of disobedience to God's commands that we commit, it's not just, it's not just hurting us, it always hurts other people. Because it's, it's, you're not loving other people when you sin. Even if you think it's a private sin, you're not loving other people. You know, I, I think of, I think probably the, the pornography, I think, is one of the greatest things that is destroying our society and our culture right now. And a lot of people think, and a lot of people think, well, it's not hurting anybody. What do you mean it's not hurting anybody? Who's, somebody's making money off of that. Somebody's filming that. Those, that's somebody's sister. That's somebody's daughter. You're not loving people. When, you, when, we, when we look at them as just an object of lust, we're not loving people. When, we, when we're just seeking to use and abuse people, we're not loving people. When we want something that, that, that besides God thinking can make us happy, we're not loving people in impurity. We're not loving people when filthy stuff comes out of our mouths and we just think it's not making a joke, but it's not building them up to God. That's not love. And what Paul is saying is we, he says, walk in love. And how do we walk in love? By obedience. God didn't just make this stuff up just to see if we would just obey. God designed humanity. He designed the human soul. He knows how life works. So, his, uh, so obeying his commands is how to love other people. 
And that's why our society is unraveling right now. It's because all of these things that people think aren't a big deal, it's destroying our society from the inside out because we've lost the capacity to love one another. What John is saying here is that God's commands are a blessing and not a burden. They free us from the grip of sin, and the wages of sin is death. So then, obedience is what? It's the opposite. It's walking in the path of life. It's walking in the path of life and not death. God's not trying to take something from us. He's trying to give us something from us. They show God's commands show us what pleases and honors God. They give us, Christ's commands give us the solid rock on which we can build our lives and know that we're loving God and that we're loving others. And what that does is it makes us unshakable when life and society and culture floods against us. And that's what Jesus said after he gave His sermon on the mount of kingdom ethics, of what it looks like to be a child of the king, a citizen of the kingdom in the sermon on the mount. Jesus closed that sermon in Matthew 7 with this. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. Either we're going to trust Jesus and therefore obey him and build our house upon the rock. Or we're going to trust ourselves and disobey him and build our house on the sand. But you can't say you haven't been warned. Great will be the fall of the house that is not built on the rock of God's word. So number one, new birth believes and loves. Number two, love obeys. And finally, number three, faith overcomes. Faith overcomes. Verses four and five. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So, again, John's weaving all these things in and out of one another. He refers again to new birth there in verse 4. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So, the new birth then in John's mind is the root that bears the fruit of faith. And faith then is the vehicle through which those born of God overcome the world. So faith then, rooted in new birth, is the vehicle through which we overcome the world. Believing the truth about Christ is how we overcome the world, how we take victory, John says, over the world. And it's important to not misunderstand what John is saying here when he's saying about faith, because there's there's a kind of a popular, uh, ambiguous, vague spirituality today that kind of talks about faith for faith's sake. Oh, you just got to have faith. You just, you know, coffee cups everywhere, just believe. You know, we hang it on our wall. Okay, that's fine. But believe in what? 
Jesus, amen, brother. <laughs> Believe in what? You, faith in faith can't save you. Only faith in Jesus can save you. Your faith is only as good as the object in which it's placed. I can believe that chair will hold me up. But if termites have eaten it, it doesn't matter what I believe. My faith will prove to be invalidated when I sit in it and I hit the floor. Because your faith is only as good as the object in which you place it in. No matter how strong our faith is, if it's placed in the wrong object, it will fail us. So faith for faith's for faith's sake, this Oprah spirituality isn't going to cut it. What John is talking about, the faith that overcomes, John says, is, as he says there uh, in, in verse 5, don't want to jump ahead, but in verse 5, who is it that overcomes the world except uh, the, wor- the one who believes that, what? That Jesus is the Son of God. There is concrete content to our faith. We overcome by belief that Jesus is the Son of God. So he's not talking about faith for faith's sake, but faith in Christ as the the Messiah, the one who 2,000 years ago was born of a virgin, lived, died on the cross to pay the penalty for the sins of his people, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven in the sight of his own apostles, and told them in the same way that you see me go, so you will see me return from heaven. Faith in the concrete reality, uh, the historical reality of Jesus, our Savior, the God-man in flesh, in his physical body, in the presence of God, who will one day split the skies and return for his people. That is the faith that overcomes the world. And what then does it mean to overcome the world? World clearly is used in a negative sense here. And earlier in the book, John told us that the world consists of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the pride of life. So, we could say that believing in Jesus as Christ, as the Son of God, gives us victory over these things. Over the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When we believe that Christ is who he says he is, and that he's greater and better and sweeter than the fleeting desires of sin, then we can indeed overcome The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. When we believe in Christ, who says, I'm coming back for you, who says that he has has been given a throne and a kingdom that shall be established forever, that our 60, 70, 80 years of life, if we're blessed, is nothing compared to the eternity that awaits us. And if we believe that, then we can overcome the world the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, of wanting, to, of wanting to, to fit in so well in the here and now that we care little about the life that really matters, the life that is to come. We can overcome the world by faith, true faith that Jesus is the Christ. And also in context, it seems clear, That for John, overcoming by faith means overcoming false belief. And of course, they all go together, right? They all go together. Faith in Christ means that in trust in who he really is and belief that he is the way, the truth, and the life. 
When we believe in that and trust in that, that faith then does what? It keeps us from believing lies. It keeps us from believing false beliefs. That's how we overcome is by belief in the truth. Because by belief in the truth, by definition, then you're overcoming false beliefs. It connects back to what we talked about. When you sin, in that moment when you give into temptation, you have believed the lie that this is going to make you happier than Jesus will. That's the lie. At that moment, you have given in to unbelief. We, faith, then, is the victory by which we overcome the lie, the lies of the devil, by believing the truth. That's why I have said before, and I said this morning, and I say again, that knowing this word isn't just something that good Christians do. It isn't just some kind of guilt trip that pastors put you on so that you can be a a good Christian and check all the boxes. It's because knowing this book is a matter of life and death. Because if we don't know the truth, then we'll be deceived by the lies. And Satan is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And he's been doing it for a long time. And he is a formidable foe. He is a roaring lion seeking people to devour. And the way he devours you is whispering lies in your ears. And if we don't cling to the truth, we won't overcome. But who is it that overcomes except he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you believe that, you do overcome. You see, we all have this temptation, and because of, because of sin, there is this great temptation in our hearts and in the world to, rather than accept the fact that we were made in God's image, we want to recreate God in our image. And you hear people say things like, well, I could never believe in a God who says, as if, as if we get to tell God what he gets to be like. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. That, it's, it's sin. That's a lie of the enemy. Overcoming these falsehoods that the world throws at us is by believing in the truth. It is not God who is to conform to our perspective, but we who are to conform to God's. And believing in Christ gives us victory over all these lies of the world. Believing the truth gives us victory over these things. Christians all over the world... This day are overcoming because they refuse to renounce the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. And for some, for some, that refusal may come in the face of a temptation, a sinful temptation, where you're enticed to do something that you know is not right to do. And you overcome and you are victorious over the world in that moment because you say, I will not deny my Christ who is the Son of God, who loved, him, who loved me and gave himself for me, and you overcome. That's a temptation. That's an overcoming. And there are other believers in Christ this day and other parts of the world who are overcoming because a sword is literally at their throat saying, we're going to lop your head off if you don't deny Jesus Christ. If you... And they overcome. How? Because they say, I will not yield. I will not deny my Christ. I will believe in him. I will trust in him. I believe at this very moment that he is better than life. So go ahead and send me to my maker because I will not deny my savior. Overcome. That's what it means to overcome. John, by the way, predicted that this would happen. It has happened. It happened in John's day. It's been happening for 2,000 years. It's happening today. You don't hear about it in the news because it doesn't fit their narrative, but it's happening today, and it will continue, and I will say increasingly so, 
up until the height of it, right before the Lord Jesus returns. And John said that this would be the case in Revelation chapter 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Overcome is the same word. Conquered is the same word as overcome here in John's letter. They conquer. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you really believe that, that, that He is the truth above all truths, that He is the treasure, he is, that, he is the pearl of great price, He is the treasure hidden in the field, that even if you have to sell everything you have to get it, it's more than worth it. If you believe that about Christ, you have overcome. And if you cling to him and love him and cherish him and refuse to deny him in the face of temptation, even unto death, we shall indeed overcome the world. We can't, we can't miss the weight of what John is trying to tell us. There's a real war being waged today, and it's a spiritual war. You see, the devil's, the devil's quite happy making you just focus on politics. He's happy about that. That's fine. He doesn't care how he gets you into hell. He, he doesn't care. He doesn't care what your idol is, as long as it's not Jesus. We can't miss the spiritual battle that is taking place today. And we can't miss the weight of what, and the glory, really, of what John is trying to tell us. And that is, we can indeed overcome. In fact, if we have been born of God, we will overcome. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Our testimony of what? Our testimony of Jesus Christ. That what? That He is the Son of God. That He is the Christ. That he is the savior of the world. And if we cling to him, and if we hold fast to him by the power of the Holy Spirit, which we will do if we belong to him, then we overcome. We, those who belong to Christ, we cannot lose. As I said this morning, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The devil knows he's going to lose. He's mad as fire about it. But if he can do anything, then what's he going to do? Is he's going to try to render us ineffective and unfruitful. But if we hold fast, if we believe in Christ, if we don't lose the faith that is in Christ Jesus, the truth about Jesus Christ, if we don't lose our love for God and our love for one another, then we will indeed overcome. We will indeed conquer. And in fact, in the book of Revelation, Jesus gives John letters to seven churches. Imagine if a letter showed up in the mail and said, from Jesus Christ. Would we do? By the way, most of those letters were pretty hard hitting. Would we listen? 
And if you go back and read the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia that John gave, that Jesus gave John, at the end of every one of those letters, Jesus says something. He says what he will give to the one who conquers, who overcomes, who does what? Who heeds his warnings, who doesn't give up, who doesn't, who doesn't yield their faith in Christ, who doesn't lose their love for God and their love for others in the midst of great hardship and difficulty. I want to read all seven of these to you, to the one who conquers. Revelation 2, 7, to the one who conquers, Jesus says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 2, 11, to the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 2.17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. <coughs> 2.26, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as myself, I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. 3.5. To the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. 3.21, to the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Dear church, if there's one thing we want to do, we want to conquer. We want to overcome. How? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And to not... Love our life even unto death. That's the hope. And that's the glory of Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, I pray tonight that you would know the one who has overcome. And that in him you might overcome as well. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the victory that we have in